right. Hey, everybody. It's good to see you. My name is Brian, one of the pastors here at the Summit, and um, we are continuing our series uh, for Christmas. Merry Christmas to all of you. And uh, if you're a guest with us, we're really glad that you're here. I know many of you may be visiting. Maybe some of you might just be checking out church um, for the first time in a long time because, you know, sometimes that's just what we do around Christmas. But whatever brought you here, we're really glad that you are here. And it's a, it's a great week for you to be here and, and just learn more about who Jesus is and, and what he might have uh, for your life. Uh, we've been in John chapter 1, John chapter 1, so if you have a Bible with you, uh, go ahead and turn there in John chapter 1. If you didn't bring a Bible, you don't own a Bible, you, I don't know, you don't like the Bible, we provided a Bible for you, you're welcome, underneath your chair, and so if you want to look underneath your chair, we provided a Bible. Um, John chapter 1 in that Bible is page 576, okay, page 576, and uh, we would love to have you turn there uh, so you can follow along with us tonight and uh, be in the know as much as possible. And if you look at page 576 or John chapter 1, what we're going to do is actually read the exact same passage that we looked at last week. We're going to look at it from a different angle. And um, it's going to be uh, John 1, 1 through 4, and then we'll jump down to verse 14. Okay? So I'll start in John chapter 1, and uh, I'll read. Uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And then skip down to verse 14. John writes this, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And what we've been doing with this passage, as we've been kind of in this Christmas series, is uh, what we said is we're trying to kind of define uh, what Christmas actually means. We said it's easy to kind of get caught up in the busyness, sentimentality, emotionalism uh, of Christmas, but um, we don't really ask the question of what does Christmas mean, and once I've kind of grabbed hold of that meaning, uh, how does that practically shape, impact my life uh, into the new year and beyond? Uh, last week, kind of the word we looked at was vulnerability, to see how Christmas means vulnerability. Tonight, the, the word that's kind of at the heart of what we're going to be studying is certainty, okay? Christmas means certainty. I feel like um, I'm the guy on uh, Sesame Street who's like, okay, boys and girls, like the word for today is certainty. And um, one of the things that we learn, <laughs> not just at the Christmas season, but um, really just around the year, is how frustratingly uncertain uh, all of life is. And uh, at the heart of this is something that we've talked about a good bit as a church. Uh, it's something that we call the illusion of control. And there's a lot of ways for me to kind of explain to you the illusion of control, but probably the best way for me to explain it to you is to tell you about my thermostat. My thermostat uh, in my house, the Barley uh, family thermostat, is set always by default at 68 degrees Fahrenheit. But every single night, uh, Megan and I go through this kind of routine. Our bedroom is upstairs, and she uh, tends to feel very cold, and I tend to feel very hot. So we'll go upstairs, uh, we'll be getting ready for bed, we'll be under the covers, kind of settle, you know, just close my eyes, and she'll be like, I feel cold. And uh, then, you know, for you husbands, you know what that means. It doesn't mean, like, she's going to go down and change the thermostat. You got sent down to go change the thermostat. And she tends to be a little bit uh, extreme about it. So it's like, turn it up. Turn it way up. Uh, you know, 60 or 70, 75, 80. So I'll go downstairs turn it to, you know, 70 degrees maybe. You know, just up a couple of degrees. Um, come back upstairs, get settled, uh, close my eyes again. It's like, 
I feel incredibly hot. So I have to go back downstairs, um, you know, and then turn it down to 69, not 68, 69. So if she asked me, um, did you turn it uh, up? Yes, I did turn it up one degree Fahrenheit. And um, after this kind of nightly ritual that we have, uh, typically what happens is we've obtained the correct temperature as well as the correct fan speed, and that combined with kind of the correct um, amount of covers over our bed, it leads to us sleeping comfortably. And um, that's just kind of the way it goes in the Barley household at night. Now, um, I don't know what it's like to be God, like the God of the universe who controls every little detail in, kind of in the ebb and flow of everyday life. But I feel I get a glimpse of what it's like to be God when I can specify the exact degree Fahrenheit in my bedroom before I fall asleep, as well as like the exact wind speed. It's like I can just speak, or a lot of times my wife just speaks, uh, and it is. She speaks, I do, and we've obtained 69 degrees Fahrenheit with correct wind speed. And, and, it, and it's just like a taste of what it must be like to be God, to control something of that little detail. And, and we don't, I mean, because we kind of have so many technological advancements, because we tend to, um, you know, just be fairly wealthy as Americans, we don't really think about, I mean, how unusual it is to have that level of control over the smallest minutia of our daily lives. Now, here's where this becomes an issue for us, is um, the illusion of control. That's where we said this all starts is that what you and I tend to assume is that because I have such absolute control over this small little area of my life, I have absolute control over every area of my life. You just kind of assume that because it works with this small little thing like the temperature in my bedroom, it must work with everything. And it's not that kind of foreign to, to, to understand how this plays out. I think in my, you know, subconsciously what I say is, um, okay, because I can program my thermostat and the temperature in my bedroom, um, I can also program much of what my life looks like. And so uh, because I have this level of control, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to be single for this period of time. I'm going to work this job, and then I'm going to meet somebody. He's going to look like this, act like this, um, have this level of education, make this kind of money. We are going to date for this period of time. He is going to ask me to marry him. We, I'm going to say yes. We're going to be engaged for this period of time. Then we're going to get married. The marriage is going to be one, or the wedding is going to be wonderful. There will be blogs that are featuring it. We will then uh, be married for a certain period of time before we have kids, then we will have our first kid, and then we all have the second kid, and then we might have a third kid. It just kind of, are we up for it or not? And, um, you know, that's just the way it's going to go. Or, you know, we assume that because, you know, for example, I love Netflix, and what I love about Netflix is, like, the opportunity to be able to tell them, like, here's exactly what I like. I can give stars to the movies and the shows that I've watched. I can specify the genres I like, and, you know, like out pops exactly what I want. It even gives me a top ten every single time. We kind of think, well, you know, I can do the exact same thing with my kids. And so in the same way, I can tell the kid exactly what I want. And, you know, if I read, kind of, you know, I have this particular parenting philosophy that I took from friends and my upbringing or in reaction to my upbringing, then, you know, I treat my kid like this, my baby like this as they're crying throughout the night. That will lead to them being this type of toddler, which will lead to them being this type of child. And then when they're that type of child, I'll push that child into this particular school and into this middle school and then this high school and then this college. And out pops exactly the 25-year-old adult that I, that I hope will uh, be. It, I will speak, and it is. And all it takes is one life plan not going the way you want it. All it takes is one child disobeying you. All it takes is one person getting really, really sick on you. All it takes is one job being lost through no fault of your own. That's just you know, the way it is around here, and we're downsizing. That's the way the economy is. All it takes is something like that to reveal to you 
that we really have very little control over the areas of life that matter the most. And the illusion of control is revealed to what it is. It's, it's nothing more than an illusion. And life in that moment becomes unbelievably, frustratingly uncertain. And I say all that um, not because I'm trying to give like the lamest and most depressing Christmas message you've ever heard. Um, no. I say all that really to kind of come to a, a simple question that I think we all have to ask ourselves. Like, what if, what if it didn't necessarily have to be that way? I'm not saying um, the control thing changes. I think that's the way it's going to be one way or another. What I'm asking you is, what if it didn't have to feel so uncertain, particularly in the, particularly in the areas of life that matter the most? I mean, wouldn't that feel like an unbelievably, unbelievable gift that you could receive, particularly at this Christmas time, um, if you could know you could have a greater certainty in the areas of life that matter the most. And, and if you do think that's a good gift, then here's the deal. Like, paint my beard white, call me Santa Claus, because here's what this text is giving you. It's giving you the gift of certainty from John chapter 1, that Christmas means certainty. And as we wrap our minds around Jesus being born in a manger, what we are gifted in our lives is a certainty that impacts us beyond Christmas time as well. Now, um, the way we're going to do this is kind of start with uh, working through the passage that we looked at the last time that we, uh, that we gathered together. And let me just kind of catch you up. So what we're going to first kind of see is how what John wants you to understand is how God is with us, okay, how God is with us. And um, if you look at the first four verses, uh, what John spent some time, ta- you know, let me just kind of summarize what we talked about last week. Uh, the first four verses, what John is telling us about is the logos, the word of God, Jesus Christ, the creator, giver of life, uh, the one through whom everything was created. He tells us about him, gives detail. Uh, he is God, verse 1. He was in the beginning, verse 2. He was the creator of all things, verse 3. He was the source of life itself, verse 4. And then we came, skip down to verse 14. We came to what is, uh, what we said is probably the most important verse in the entire passage. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And it's that verse that I want to dive into. Uh, We dove into it last week, but I want to dive into in in kind of greater detail from a different angle. Um, Particularly, if you have a a pin here and uh, you're you're taking notes, what I would do is is I would circle that word dwelt, dwelt among us. I would underline that, circle it, star it, um, put a smiley face to it, whatever it is to help you understand um, that is tremendously important. Because that word, dwell, so John originally wrote this letter, or wrote this book. He wrote it in Greek. That's kind of what people wrote, back, wrote in back then. And the word he used there was a word called skenao, skenao. Doesn't that, that just sounds fun even to say. I know, like, probably none of you speak Greek in your everyday life, but he used this word skenao. And what it meant was something more robust um, than just dwelt. Um, I think that's a, I'm not trying to dis this translation or anything like that. I'm just saying it's something richer. It's just a word we don't use very often. It's not like uh, the word came and he hung out with us. He was around us. He wanted to be with us. But if you, if you kind of translated this very literally, what it would say is, is the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And tabernacled among us. Now, um, I don't immediately kind of expect you to be like, man, like that is so significant. Um, because you probably don't use the word tabernacle in the ebb and flow of your daily life. You're like, hey, you want to go tabernacling this weekend? You're like, yeah, I'd love to go tabernacling. You, you get beat up for talking like that. Um, and, uh, and so let's, let's kind of wrap our minds around what this word actually means. So the word tabernacle, it, it comes from uh, the Old Testament. And um, it, it was kind of the heart where, where this kind of came from um, was that there was, there was an issue that people were continually trying to fix 
in the Old Testament. It was kind of a question of how is it that somebody who's, uh, how is it that somebody as great, powerful, um, amazing as God can be with us? Um, and, and this isn't really that foreign of a concept because, I mean, we've all, if you've ever been kind of in the same room as, let's just say, a celebrity, or let's say you didn't just go uh, see a band, but you got to hang out with the band after the show, or let's say um, the, the, the owner of your company, the CEO, was in the room uh, having lunch with you, um, you know that in those moments, like, you are very aware of that person's prominence and power. I told this story few months ago, I'm not around famous people very often, so I kind of have to tell the same story over and over again. But a couple weeks or a couple months ago, um, I was working at the Starbucks, I think it's at 18th and Curtis, and Mark McGuire actually walked into that Starbucks. He's the hitting coach for the Dodgers. He walks into the, in the room, and like, I mean, I was like a middle school girl um, at a One Direction concert. That's kind of the way I explain it. And um, I'm getting very nervous, very emotional. I'm sweating so much. I'm going to have to go home and like change my shirt. I introduce myself and I'm like so, I mean, I was just blubbering over my words. And um, that's just kind of the way it goes. If you've ever, I mean, I know it's kind of ridiculous for me to tell that story now, but you know that's kind of the way it goes. Um, you get in the same room with somebody very powerful and important and um, a lot of times you are very, very aware, overwhelmed by their power. Now, take that concept and multiply it kind of a thousandfold because what's, what's John told you? He's told you about who God is. He said, I mean, he's the creator of everything. He's the giver and sustainer of life itself. And so he possesses this intrinsic importance, prominence, power, glory that it's difficult to be in the same room as him. In fact, over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament, I hope some of you will read the Old Testament um, in, in the coming year if you haven't read it because over and over again, are these amazing stories where people kind of get in and around God, and they are just overwhelmed by him. So, so a guy named Moses, for example, um, he, he hears that God is going to manifest his presence, and so he hikes up in this mountain. He hides behind this rock formation, and God makes his presence manifest, and, and Moses just gets kind of a glimpse of who God is, and his face begins to shine. It begins to glow, and it so freaks out his friends and family, he has to wear a veil over his face so that people stop asking questions. Or, or Isaiah, later in the Old Testament, gets a glimpse of who God is, and here's what he cries out. He cries out, uh, and I said, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And so over and over again in the Old Testament, what happens is God makes himself known. He kind of gets in the same room with his people, and it's like tossing a boulder into a still pond. The waves of his glory and power just spread and overwhelm everywhere around him. And the good news, what you see in the Old Testament, is that God's desire with his people is something greater than just overwhelming us. He, he desires a relationship with us as well. And so what he commands to be built is something called the tabernacle. It was just a word that meant meeting place. And we actually have a picture of it right here so you can kind of get an idea of what this looks like. It was this giant compound. It was about a, a third the size of a football field. And they had all sorts of altars for sacrifices. And they had candles and incense and, 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 a, and kind of a, a makeshift temple. And it was this unbelievably um, just complex building that people would go to in order that they could be around God and not be overwhelmed by him. And in fact, one of my favorite kind of descriptions of what it did was um, uh, when Moses would uh, go, to see, go to see God, and it was described, Exodus 33, um, it was the place, the tabernacle was the place where the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. I love that image. I'll just read it again. Where the Lord would speak face to, fa- or to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Now, 
Here's why all this matters and is relevant to what we're talking about here. Is that when John chooses to use the word tabernacle, what he is pointing you to is that the fulfillment of the tabernacle has come. Long ago, millennia prior, God had promised that not just a building would be built, but a person would come to offer what the tabernacle had to offer. And what John is proclaiming in John chapter 1 is that, that when Jesus Christ stepped out of heaven into history and was born in a manger, the full glory of who God is, the full presence of who God is, the full power of who God is, was pleased to dwell in this baby. He tabernacled among us, and it's in the person of Jesus Christ that we go to meet God, and we speak to God as a friend speaks to a friend, face to face. Jesus Christ, that's why, that's why John, he, for example, he, he describes in verse 1, Jesus Christ as the logos, the word. He is the revelation of who God is. He makes God known in a certifiable, knowable, tangible way. That's the, that's the way words work. That's why we talk. We reveal what, what do we know about one another. For example, you can't just kind of guess uh, my favorite ice cream flavor. And I'm like, man, like that looks like a guy who loves chocolate chip cookie dough. Like you can't, I have to tell you, I have to reveal to you that information. And so it is with God. God has to speak and reveal himself. And he has chosen to do that to tabernacle among us in the person of Jesus Christ. So John wants us to understand. Now, the reason we get a bit uh, kind of theological here is that this is the, the foundation upon which we can understand why do we receive these gifts of certainty. So you have to understand verse 14 if you're going to understand, like, how does the certainty of Christmas then break into the areas of our life that matter the most? And there's, there's a couple areas of life that, um, that I think that we can really kind of treasure the certainty that Christmas gives. I would say there's certainty for our heads and certainty for our hearts, okay? Certainty for our heads and certainty for our hearts. And let's start in, um, let's start in uh, with the first one, certainty for our, our head. Um, now, I think, it's in, I think it's in verse 14 that you actually, you not only get certainty for your head, but what you get a glimpse into is actually how Christianity is unlike uh, really every other form of religion and spirituality. And let me just kind of help you understand. Um, if you pry into a lot, most other religions and, and understandings of spirituality, if you, if you try to pry intellectually, I'm talking like understand, like why do we actually believe this? A lot of times what you're met with uh, are closed doors and stone walls. And so l- l- let me just give you a few examples of this. And I'm not trying to be kind of combative at Christmas time, but maybe it's just my spirit that I'm combative all the time. And so l- l- let me just kind of help you wrap your mind around what I'm talking about here. So um, Mormonism, for example, that we would say is different than Christianity. Mormonism is founded on kind of th- this historical event where a single person, kind of a single guy, um, stumbles upon these golden plates that only he can see and only he can translate, and, and, and nobody else can look at them, and nobody else can verify them. And then, uh, you know, you ask, like, okay, well, what happened to these plates that became, like, the very foundation for the Book of Mormon, which is the very foundation of what you guys believe? He's like, well, the angel who gave them to me gave, he, he demanded them back. It was kind of like, you know, you can only have them for a certain period of time. They're a rental. We don't get to own them. Um, give them back. And uh, that's the very foundation of kind of what um, the Mormon 
church believe that, or it's at least founded upon, the Book of Mormon is founded upon that that happened. Or um, Islam is much in the same way, where a certain man had a certain vision in a cave, and is it, it's not really verifiable, it's just kind of like you have to take his word for it that it actually happened. Or uh, Eastern, uh, Eastern spiritualities and religions, if you kind of pry into them intellectually, a lot of times you're met with, well, you know, they're not meant to be exactly logical. Um, you kind of trying to understand what you believe and why you believe it is demystifying the spirituality, and you shouldn't really pry into this to this detail. And um, here's why I say all this, is that what you're getting in Christianity in John chapter 1 is one of the things that makes it unlike everything else, is that when John proclaims the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, what he's proclaiming is that the foundation of what we believe, the foundation of why we do what we do are not hidden golden plates that nobody else can see. It's not dreams and visions that nobody else can verify. It's God becoming man, the the most important man in all of human history, real, certifiable, verifiable in the the midst of history and historical uh, 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 verifiability. And it's God bending over backwards saying, not just know me, but test me, verify me. He is stepping in and he is revealing himself in a way that could be verified. He made his dwelling among us, not some random guy up in the mountains, us, amongst the Romans and the Jews and the Greeks. It's, it's kind of easy for us to, I would say, to, to take this for granted because at Christmas we're just kind of like, yeah, like God became a baby or God was born in a manger and we sing songs about it and we don't really understand kind of the profound nature of it. But do you understand like the, the magnitude of the grace and the humility that's being modeled in this moment where God is willing to bend over backwards in order to ensure that you can know with absolute certainty that he is who he says he is? In fact, as I was thinking about it this week, um, what it reminded me of is the movie The Notebook. Um, which before any of you, yes, I know, I'm like seeing people all over just like, okay, man card revoked, okay? It's a good movie. It's a powerful love story, and um, I'm not ashamed, so don't be hating, okay? And, um, and I think uh, one, one of my favorite things that I love about The Notebook is, you know, if you, if you haven't seen it, so you've got this wife who's old and has Alzheimer's, and then, um, you, you know, she can't really discern uh, what is true and what is not true. She, she doesn't know kind of what's real. And, and then she has this husband who's willing to kind of help her understand the truth, not by being, you know, like, well, you have limited cognitive capacities, you idiot. Like, here's the truth. Why don't you just believe the truth? Like, what does he do? Like, he bends over backwards, and he enters into their world, into her world to tell the story in the exact way she needs to hear it so she can know with certainty what is real. And it's beautiful, isn't it? I mean, don't lie. You got a little bit dusty in the theater, and it's Okay. And at Christmas, what, what's being proclaimed is God loves us so much that he doesn't look at us and say, well, you know, like, I'm God, and I only deal in dreams and visions and golden plates, and that's just the way I work, and you're just going to have to deal with the fact that you have li- limited cognitive capacities. That's just the way it's going to be. No, like, he bends over backwards, and he enters into our world in the exact way we need him to enter into our world so that we can verify him and know him and relate to him and say, okay, like you came into real history as a real person that can be touched and verified and you taught and you spoke and there's a book about you that can be read. That's what we need. And I'm telling you, it's not just for, I mean, people who might be like me who like to kind of be a little bit philosophical. It's for all of us. I mean, if this is going to be real, if this is going to be beyond just kind of some 
tradition that we uphold because maybe we grew up going to church or maybe that's like what we're supposed to do around Christmas. I'm, I'm talking about like if this is really going to shape your life. I'm talking about this. Jesus Christ is the one who, who reigns over your life. Jesus Christ is the one who, who determines uh, how you use your money. Jesus Christ is the one that you lean upon in the midst of tragedy. Jesus Christ is the one you cling to with a belief of the security of the salvation of your soul. Jesus Christ is the one that you build your life upon. What you need is not dreams and visions and sentimentality and emotionalism. You need the truth, something certifiable, something verifiable, something real. And when John proclaims that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, what he's proclaiming is this is the truth, and the truth doesn't hide. It doesn't, it's not afraid of being verified. But instead, he has loved us so much, he has bent over backwards to make sure that we can discern what is real and not real. In fact, this is where I've just, you know, for some of you, I don't, I don't know kind of all of your stories here, and, you know, some of you are visiting for Christmas, and so... Um, this is just where I would push some of you where, you know, you kind of write off Christianity or you don't take Christianity that seriously or you don't really build your life upon Christianity because um, you don't really think, you know, it's true. And, you know, maybe you're the person who heard, um, you know, a college professor in freshman intro to religious studies talk about how Jesus was, you know, not who he says he is. And you, uh, I don't know, you had a bad experience or something like that. And we're not trying to dismiss that or marginalize that. But we would say, well, somebody as important as who Jesus Christ is you need to examine the evidence for yourself. And God has gone above and beyond to provide for you sure evidence upon which you can build your life, to have certainty for your head. In fact, I've heard it put this way. It's beautiful. A lot of times, um, even though I'm speaking to you right now, people uh, maybe like you would say that Christianity, you know, it's all about belief and it's about faith. And I would say, okay, like there are elements of belief and faith. But here's the deal, is that it is not a leap into the dark. It is a small step into the light. Because God has desired to make himself known so that you can have certainty with your head to say, okay, this is real, this is true, and I'm going to build my life upon this and cling to this in the moments that are most difficult. Now, not only is there certainty for our heads, but there's also certainty for our hearts. Certainty for our hearts. And, and we need this, okay? I mean, I understand a lot of us are thinkers, and, um, but, but, but here's the deal. Like, what we need, let's even just kind of return back to that opening idea of saying that like, there's areas of our life, the most important areas of our lives are those areas that we have the least control over. Like in those moments where you recognize how little control you have over those areas of life that matter the most, I mean, what you need is not just somebody to be like, hey, like, it's all going to be okay. Like, you need to feel something far deeper inside. And here's the good news of this passage. This passage is actually written against the backdrop of men and women who were waiting they were waiting in an agonizing fashion. In fact, I heard it put this week, that they were waiting like a child waits for their dad to get home from work after a long day away. I've heard it put that they were waiting like a, a groom waits at the front of a church as he looks back at double doors, uh, anticipating his bride walking in. They are waiting. They were waiting because God had made this promise, this promise that a person was coming. A man would come and he would heal the brokenness and the sin and the disaster that we experience in, in our lives and in our world. And they waited, and generation after generation it passed, and the fulfillment wasn't given. And year after year after year, their, their skepticism and their doubts arose. And, and in their hearts, they started to ask the same questions that 
all of us ask in those moments where we wait and we kind of wonder, is this whole thing real or not? Is God really there? Does he really care? Is he really going to be in charge and in control of everything? Is he really uh, going to, to do what he has promised to do in our lives? They were waiting. Waiting is agonizing, isn't it? I mean, this is, this is kind of the, the season of year where we can reflect back on just how agonizing waiting is. Many of you probably, as kids, can remember asking for something in particular. And, you know, even though you discovered that it existed on, like, December 21st, those four days until December 25th to see if you got it or not were terrible. I, I remember I asked for a three-CD changer when I was in middle school. Um, this feel like is my age. Uh, but kids, back in my day, we didn't have iPods where you could have, like, 2,000 songs in your pocket. You actually had to change the CDs yourself. And um, when I unwrapped that package and saw that it was there, I embraced it like it was a soldier returning home from war. I mean, I just, like, held this thing for 15 minutes. And, I mean, I discovered it existed, I think, on December 17th. So it was, like, a good week wait. Waiting is terrible. And um, I, was even, I was even kind of reflecting this week on uh, – I had a conversation with a friend of mine back in college, actually. He was my roommate. And um, he, he told me the story about, you know, we were kind of swapping stories about, like, the thing you most wanted for Christmas. And he told me the story about how uh, back in elementary school, the one thing he wanted more than any, or the one thing he wanted more than anything else for Christmas was this jean jacket, this, this blue denim jacket, um, because I guess, like, that's what all the cool kids in his elementary school had as well. They had this blue uh, denim jacket, and so, of course, he wanted one as well. The catch was, it was kind of, like, it was this particular type of jacket. It was pretty pricey. And um, his family was very, very poor, unbelievably poor. But, you know, like when you're in elementary school, you don't kind of have your mind wrapped around, like, the state of your family's finances. So you just ask, and you 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 ask. And he said, I mean, the nights leading up to Christmas are just terrible. Am I going to get it? Am I not going to get it? And it was Christmas Eve, he said. He was laying there. He's, like, in third grade. He's, like, laying, staring at the ceiling. Um, he's like, well, I might as well not wait anymore on an empty, uh, empty stomach. So he decides to sneak downstairs on Christmas Eve and... Um, and get something to eat. So, you know, he does like the pitter-patter thing down the hallway in order not to wake up his parents and get in trouble. He does the pitter-patter thing down the steps in order to not wake up his parents and get in trouble as well. And, uh, it's about, and he's about halfway down the stairs. He looks over the banister, and his mom is sitting at the kitchen table. And his mom is sitting at the kitchen table, and she's actually in the process of cutting up one of her denim dresses in order to provide the material in order to make and sew together a jacket that looks exactly like the one he wanted so badly. And what he told me was that in that moment, what he was, like, particularly psyched about was not, um, you know, I'm getting what I asked for, even though he was very excited about that. Now, you know, to go up a strata in the cool uh, world in elementary school. He said what was so powerful about that moment was he received a deep certainty that his mom loved him to this degree, that his mom would fulfill this promise she made, even if, even if it came at some sort of expense to herself. And at Christmas, that is exactly what we celebrate. When we look at the manger and we see that God is willing to step out of heaven and become vulnerable and become man, to be born as a baby, not just touchable but also killable, and that, that Jesus Christ had the, had the cross in mind from the cradle. That from the very beginning, I mean, the plan was always, it didn't get changed from the cradle. The plan was he would live a sinless life, he would be crucified on a cross to take on the punishment we deserve for our sins against God. When we see that God would not just fulfill a promise, but fulfill this promise at great expense to himself, what is stirred in our hearts is a deep certainty. 
it provides an assurance that, that probably is much more precious than all the philosophical truths and, and theological answers that we could get to it from the stage. That if you wonder about why you should have some sort of certainty in the goodness and the provision and the kindness of God, all you have to do is look to the cradle and look to the cross and see how those two bookends tell a story of how much God loves you, that he will fulfill a promise for you. And he will give a gift to you, even if it comes at great expense to himself. And so what does that mean? Well, what it means is that do you have any control over your life? You don't. And that's like the really hard thing. Like the areas of your life that matter the most, you and I, we have almost no control over. I think that's just something we have to be absolutely honest about. I mean, I could be carrying a sickness inside me right now. I'm not even aware of it. It leads to me not breathing tomorrow morning. Nothing I can do about that. But what Christmas proclaims is that God, through the gospel, even though I have control over almost no area of my life, God, through the gospel, has granted me access to the one person in the universe who controls everything in my life. And when I look at the cradle and the cross and I see his love and provision and protection of me and that he reigns and rules over my life, I don't freak out. I rejoice. And I can rest. And what does that mean then? It means that, I mean, for some of us, then we can stop being such anxious people. Some of us, we are like the most anxious people in the world where the smallest thing goes wrong. And what it leads to is us laying in bed, staring at the ceiling, churning through worst case scenarios of exactly how our life is going to crumble and fall apart. And for others of us, we're very controlling people. Some of you in this room, you're very controlling people. And the real consequence of trying to control your world is, is you don't have a very large world. You're not God. And instead of kind of controlling your kids and instead of kind of controlling your spouse and instead of controlling your roommates, instead of controlling the people that you work with and work for you and, and controlling what people think of you and you trying to figure out how do you play God, you let go <laughs> and you chill out <laughs> and you entrusts your life and the lives of the people that you care about and love the most to the person in the universe who's in control of everything and, and will run things far better than you and I ever could. And for some of you here, you know what it means? It means that you surrender your life. It means you become a Christian. It means you, that's kind of at the heart of what Christianity is. You recognize you're not God and you can't play God. There's one God and you're not him. And then you let go of this control and you say, okay, like, I'm going to believe in you. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to receive you. What you've done for me for the forgiveness of my sins, I'm not going to try to earn that through my obedience or through being a really educated or talented or cool person. I'm going to believe, know, love, and follow you. And I'm going to let you reign, rule, have full control over my life. The cradle and the cross provides a certainty to allow us to make changes of that that degree in our lives. It allows us to have a certainty that we carry, not just around Christmas when we're swept up in the emotion, but, but into the new year, and into June and July and 2014 and 2015 and the many years beyond. And so here's what I want to do. I just want to pray, and what I want to do is I want to ask God, really ask him, to let us actually have this change our lives. It is so easy at Christmas. What it, it's so easy at Christmas, isn't it? To like sing some songs, get inspired, watch the Santa Claus, which is a fantastic movie, love it very much, and then just get beyond, you know, just get beyond it. But let's pray 
And I want you to pray as well. And let's ask God to let this certainty change us and liberate us in the ways that it's meant to do. Whatever it is he wants to do in your life, whatever it is he wants to do in my life, let's just ask him this will be the case. And then we will sing and rejoice some more. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much um, that there is, you have been with us. That's what we proclaim at Christmas, Emmanuel. That's what people cried out when they saw Jesus Christ, meaning God with us. And and God, you have been with us in in a knowable, intelligible, verifiable way. And because of this, this frees us up to build a life upon that solid foundation of bedrock. And so God, what my prayer is, is that for all of us in this room, that we would respond accordingly to what you did 2,000 years ago by being born in a manger and eventually heading to a cross. And God, that means then that we stop thinking, even just something as practical as we stop thinking worst case scenario about our own lives and the people around us and um, if we're always anticipating the worst from our friends and, and with our kids, forgive us of that. I understand that the person in the universe who works for the best case scenario reigns and rules over our lives if we're a follower of you. God, if it means that we need to just stop being controlling and understand that there's one person in the universe who is meant to have their will come to fruition, it's not mine and it's not theirs, it's yours. And let us just be okay with however the world unfolds underneath your care. God, if it means that we need to follow you and surrender our lives to you for the very first time in our lives, that's, that's what I pray that some people would do right now, is even just make this decision in their heart. Okay, I don't have this all figured out, but I do know this is true. And I do want to start following you um, to the level and degree that I'm supposed to. So God, through the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray that he would stir and awaken our hearts to rightly celebrate and reciprocate the certainty you gave to us at Christmas. Yes, all these things in the powerful name of Jesus.